This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 307. So today is Sunday, January 15th, 2023. And today I'm covering the news and rumors stories that caught my eye for this past week. Now, once again, we don't have anything from the new owners of Canon Rumors, so I have no stories from them. But we will continue on as normal. And in this episode, photos of Dark Side of the Moon, Bride Walks Out, How to Title Your Work, and more. Hypersensitive camera beams back photos of the dark side of the moon. The NASA-built shadow cam has beamed back its first image, the amazing photos of the far side of the moon, and shows off the camera's hypersensitivity to light. Shadow cam is on board the Korea Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter, or KPLO, known as Danuri. The mission was launched in August last year and marks South Korea's first successful moon orbiter. The first photo shows the permanently shadowed wall and floor of the Shackleton Crater in never-before-seen detail. To understand just how good Shadow Cam is, below is the region of the Shackleton Crater imaged by NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, in 2009, as in the left-hand side of the image, which is in total darkness. While these images may show what are fairly standard photos of the moon's surface, they are actually remarkable because the photos have been taken in complete darkness. The shadow cam has been designed to take high-resolution images of the moon's permanently shadowed regions, or PSRs, in the hope that the instrument will provide critical information about the distribution and accessibility of water ice. The moon's PSRs never see direct sunlight, so the shadow cam was designed to be over 2,000 times more sensitive than previous imagers. The pixel size is 12 UM and delivers 3,072 by 84,332 pixels. The lens is just short of 700 millimeters, and the camera will deliver a resolution of better than 6.6 feet, or 2 meters per pixel. According to the imaging team, the camera's ability to capture clear images at high sensitivity is the equivalent of of increasing ISO from 100 to greater greater than 12,800 without increasing noise. The result gives scientists and the general public their first ever view of the dark side of the moon. The top quarter of the images shows the permanently shadowed wall of the Shackleton Crater, with the other three quarters showing the crater floor. A narrow line runs down the wall, which the uh, shadow cam scientists say is a path carved by a boulder, while the faint horizontal lines are just camera artifacts. This is an amazing story, and I'm really surprised to see that they were able to take such detailed images of the dark side of the moon, with this new shadow cam. So my hat's off to NASA and their people for coming up with an innovative way to finally give us a peek at the side of the moon that only ever sees darkness. Make your photos look 3D with Dodge and Burn and Capture One 23. One of the challenges of photographing landscapes is creating images that reflect the right amount of depth and dimension. But sometimes it seems no matter how hard you try and how often you hear well-meaning advice from other photographers, the photos you take almost always come out darn flat. In this video, which you can find in this article in the show notes, uh, I want to show you how you can increase the three-dimensionality and bring out the depth of your images with a simple and very effective editing technique that I really believe is going to take your post-processing to the next level. We're going to transform this original pano shot before into this final image after. Here we have a pano shot from the Icelandic Highlands made of X horizontal images, I think it's supposed to be six, taken with the telephoto lens, an astonishing landscape that I witnessed last year during my winter workshop there. 
The snow is great at filling in shadow areas by bouncing sunlight like a giant reflector and making shadows less intense. However, for this type of scenario, the contrast sometimes is too low and the image lacks the beautiful depth I recalled when I captured the scene. For this scene, what we want to do is introduce more contrast to make the snow more intense and give the image more character and oomph. We can use difficult methods such as increasing the contrast by using the contrast slider, but quite often this control is not very effective and it doesn't make any significant difference. Alternatively, we can work with the levels or the curves tool to bring out details and increase the dynamic range of the image, but all of these methods are global and not local. We need a different method that is more flexible, precise, and artistic. That's why for this tutorial, we're going to be using a technique called dodge and burn. My favorite of all time, and it's possibly one of the most important pillars of photo editing, if not the most important. Dodging or lightning and burning or darkening are a throwback to darkroom film techniques when developers used masking tools to block parts of the image during development to change their lightness. Dodging and burning are local adjustments that can be used to fine-tune the contrast selectively over different areas of a scene, giving the image a greater impact. For this demonstration, I'm going to use Capture One, but with a few slightly different adjustments, you can apply the same process to other editing programs. Before we get into the dodging and burning technique, I want to optimize the pano shot a little bit. So let me show you an interesting strategy that I occasionally use to change the balance and proportions of the elements within the frame. To me, these mountains are a little too small. The whole frame feels a little squashed vertically. So to make the mountain stand out a little more, I'm going to use a couple of sliders in the Keystone module. I'm going to set the aspect slider to minus 25 to get the mountains higher. This slider basically stretches or flattens the image vertically. Then I'm going to drag the vertical slider to, to correct the verticals. Of course, we don't have any vertical lines here, but this, is, this tool really helps create that nice effect of the mountains by stretching them enough to make them more pronounced, and that's exactly what we want. If you're a purist, this setting might not be to your taste. Anyway, that's the way I like it. Now that we have corrected the panorama, we can start post-processing the image and create a nice 3D effect of the snow. First, let's analyze how light hits the landscape, and we can easily see that the light is coming from the left side of the image. We have this soft side light, which because of its nature is very effective at creating depth in the landscape. To use this technique correctly, it's absolutely important to understand how light behaves. So to add more dimension to the image, we want to adjust the relationship between the highlights and the shadows on the different snowy mountains and increase the local contrast according to the actual direction of the light. We could play with things like levels increasingly increasing the global contrast, but aside from the color shifting we see here, it's generally not going to be what we want to do. Even though technically it's hitting all the right parts of the image, the dodge and burn process is much more artistic. It's not simply taking what's in the image and enhancing it. It's more about taking that and then adding an artistic spin to it. So global adjustments are generally not the way you want to dodge and burn. In Capture One, there are several tools to make local adjustments, such as the gradient or radial mask tool. But the standalone brush tool is really the best tool for the job. With this brush, when you paint, it just goes wherever you put it. So I'm going to create two new empty layers by clicking the plus icon in the Layers tab, one for the burning and one for the dodging. I recommend you keep the two separate layers or layers separate so you can control them independently and have a cleaner workflow. I love using the black and white tool as a checker to have the transitional areas between highlights and shadows more evident. When we activate the black and white view, we're going to remove all the colors in the image so that we can better judge the brightness distribution in the shot. I also reduce the color brightness of the blue and cyan channels to increase contrast between the bright and dark areas. So this really helps to better follow the direction of the light when dodging and burning. Now we're going to select the burn layer with a minus one exposure level for our brush and a very low flow and we're going to start painting things in and darkening the shadow areas. 
This process needs to be gentle and incremental. We want to build up the contrast gradually, so I wouldn't recommend using a high flow with this technique. It's far too aggressive. The basic idea is that you paint freely over the dark areas and that you want to create a level of local contrast that suits your vision of the shot, yet looks natural and not overdone. I usually change the brush size frequently according to the size of the area I want to paint over. For dodging and burning, using the mouse is okay, but a drawing tablet has significant advantages over the mouse when it comes to performance and quality. The process is smoother, more precise, and also more enjoyable. If in some areas the effect is too strong, just select the eraser tool with a low flow setting to reduce the intensity. Let's move to the dodge layer. Now we want to brighten up the highlights, so we're going to set the exposure of the brush at about plus one. As always, a low flow value. And we're going to start painting following the highlights. We want to increase step by step the brightness of these mountains, intensifying the light coming from the left. Take a look here below at how we improve separation in the foreground by enhancing the tiny uh, ridges. Here is the result after the dodge and burn. And of course, you can see all of this in the show notes for this episode. As you can see, this technique is very powerful, but there is a problem with this process. And what I mean is that you can't precisely paint freehand around the edges. Sometimes the dodging fails over the, uh, falls over the shadows and vice versa. I could activate the auto mask function for the brush, which will give me the ability to control things. Sometimes that works really well. But since we don't have well-defined edges, in this case, it doesn't work quite effectively and we run the risk of generating artifacts. So to solve this task, we can take advantage of a wonderful feature called Luma Range. And this is really where you're going to start getting more local control. This tool provides a series of adjustments that allow us to control which range of tones is being adjusted. It basically allows us to create or refine a mask based on the brightness values. This tool may seem a little intimidating, but it's actually quite simple to use. At the top of the bar, we have got two range handles that allow us to control the range of the brightness values you want to affect with the adjustment. So everything between these two top range handles is included in the Luma mask. At the bottom of the bar, you have the falloff handles that give you control over how quickly the selection fades. So this tool gives us the ability to refine the dodging and burning we did, avoiding to get disrupted edges between the transitional areas. The sensitivity slider controls how hard or soft the edge of the selection is, whereas the radius we control the intensity of the sensitivity effect. Now let's apply the Luma range to both the adjustment layer to refine the dodge and burn. For the burn layer, I'm going to filter out the highlights and I'm going to fade out the selection by adjusting the lower handle. Then let's increase the sensitivity just a tad for a slightly harder edge and bump the radius up to about 10 to enhance the, the effect. Can you see how we are able to refine the selection to better target just the shadows and exclude the highlights? This tool is incredibly powerful. Let's do the same thing to the dodge level. In this case, we want to filter out the shadows, so we want to drag the top black handle toward the right. We're going to fade it out for a softer transition. And here, now you can see how we've corrected these areas where we brushed over the sky, for example. It's much better now. Let's go over the last few adjustments for our shot. I'm generally not a big fan of bright blue tones, so I'm going to move to the color editor module, and I'm going to start by reducing the saturation and the luminance of the blue tones a tiny bit. I quite love this sort of metallic blue tone, and since we're going to increase contrast with the two following steps, it, this really helps to mitigate the increase of saturation. Next, I want to introduce a slight blue tint to the entire image to emphasize the overall coldness of the scene. And to do that, I'm going to create a new filled layer, and I'm going to use the color balance tool to add a slight blue cast to the shadows, midtones, and highlights. Now I want to make two more adjustments to improve the global contrast, so I'm going to add another filled layer, and I'm going to use the Curve tool. I'm going to add two anchor points, one right next to the right side of the histogram and another on the left side, and then I'll drag the left point down to increase the contrast. 
With the next adjustment, I want to increase the contrast only on the midtones, so let's create a new filled layer. I'm going to use the Levels tool to increase the contrast, and I'm going to drag the middle and right handles until I reach the sides of the histogram. As you can see, the effect is pretty strong, and we're blowing out the highlights. So I'm going to select the Luma range, and here we're going to set the handles so that they only affect the midtones. If we activate the mask, you can see that we're only working on a limited portion of the brightness values without affecting the very dark or the very bright areas of the shot. The image is now much punchier and three-dimensional, and we also protect the highlights and blacks. This technique is so powerful, and I use it extensively for many of my landscape images. Finally, as a last step, I want to give you a bonus tip that isn't necessarily related to the topic of this video, but I think it works pretty well for this shot. I get asked a lot about my technique for creating the glow effect in Capture One, so here it is. It's pretty simple. You need to create a brand new filled le adjustment level, select the dehaze eyedropper tool, and click one of the brightest areas of the mountains. At this point, you need to reduce the dehaze level to about minus 20. This value really depends on the image you're working with. Then bring the clarity slider to minus 100 and increase the structure to 40-45 to soften the details and create this glowy effect. Then I'm going to move over the levels module and increase the upper left handle to shift the black point. Now the image looks too dreamy for my taste, so I have to limit the selection to the highlights. To do this, I need to apply the Luma range and adjust the black handle right about there and set a very soft roll off and maybe a touch of radius. Now we have a lovely glow effect that adds even more character to the image. This effect doesn't work with every image, but when you have some sort of dynamic light in your shot, it works quite beautifully. And here is the final product, very dramatic with a great amount of depth and dimension. I hope you found this tutorial useful. I'm pretty sure this technique will make your take your images to the next level. P.S. If you like my photography and you're interested in joining me on one of my photography workshops, please also check out my website. And this is a great article, and it does have an accompanying video at the top of the article, which you can find in the show notes. And you can watch him go through this entire process with this image uh, yourself and, uh, and uh, see exactly how they do this. Actually, I stand corrected. I think it might be a young lady, but... Uh, either way, you can check out the video for yourself in today's show notes and learn this new dodge and burn technique for yourself, especially if you use Capture 123. How to title your photography work. Titling a photograph or body of photographic work can be a daunting and often draining task. In many instances, a title will represent the work before someone has even seen the front cover or leading image of a series, which means a punchy title can make all the difference in capturing someone's attention or losing it. There are many ways you can go about assist assigning a label to your work that not only identifies it, but also can enhance and frame an entire experience for your audience. The easiest title is usually one which contains some obvious and directly relevant information about the work, usually one of the five W's of storytelling, who, what, when, where, and why. These titles can tell you exactly what to expect overall or exactly what the specific image contains. Examples of this would include Country Doctor by W. Eugene Smith, Harlem Gang Leader by Gordon Parks, The Americans by Robert Frank, Invasion 68 Prague by Joseph Koldeka. Even without seeing any images, you can know what to expect from these works. A rural medical practitioner, fringes of urban life, some Americans, and Prague being invaded in 1968, and seeing the images fills in the rest of the specifics. Less straightforward would be a little would be a title containing a more abstract message, something that conveys some feeling or personal connection the creator may have with the work. For example, Memories of a Dog by Dido Moramaya, The End of the Game by Peter Beard, Raise a Laugh by Richard Billingham, and Whatever You Say, Say Nothing by Giles Perez. These are a bit ambiguous and require more unpacking in order to truly appreciate than even looking at the photographs may offer.
where a straightforward five W's title gives you, you direction and answer up front, these offer something closer to a question, which the body of work may or may not answer. The books I've listed here are mostly documentary work, so I think the title is soundly completed by the work itself, but a title that is not so neatly solved by the work itself would be along the lines of Minutes to Midnight by Trent Park, where there is a reasoning behind the title, but enough is left to the reader to make their own connection outside of Park's intention. So far, I have only mentioned bodies of work, titles that are necessarily broad to as to encompass themes and events that will be explored across many images. Titling individual images is common when we will be standing alone as individual prints outside of the context of a larger body of work. As such, the title for a wild image can ground it in context or remove it further. Raising the flag on Iwo Jima by Joe Rosenthal gives you the activity and exact location, while the context of the image in the uniforms and the flag itself provides the rest. VJ Day in Times Square by Alfred Einstadt offers the exact location and reason for celebration. Migrant Mother by Dorothea Lang turns a person with the name into an archetype, one that continues to have impact today as it did when it was first published. Similarly, Gordon Park's photograph, American Gothic, requires knowledge of the painting of the same name to fully unpack the meaning behind why he chose the label the image when he could have been more straightforward was something like Ella Watson, Washington, D.C., 1942. Affixing the label American Gothic elevates the portrait through the direct association with existing art iconography, both in the denotion of the image itself and the connotation of its title. A title is not the same as a caption. While a title ideally offers a punchy mnemonic device to refer to a nonverbal image using language, a caption must provide more. There are many standard templates for captions that are used by primarily journalistic organizations. When I file wire service picture packages, I use the following attached to the EXIF data. City, country, day in numbers, month spelled out, year in numbers, explain who is in the photograph left to right, what they are doing, why they are doing it, and the revelation to a news or relation to a news story, and then copyright Simon King. This is a bare bones news style caption, which I would not use in one of my personal publications. For that, I I could be a bit more poetic and unnecessary, with no need for bluntness as there is in photojournalism. Captioning individual images is essential in journalism and optional for pretty much everything else. In journalism, the story must be told and cannot be ambiguous. A caption ensures that what is left unsaid in the image is supplied as close as possible to it. For journalistic work, a title is usually less important than the caption. As long as the caption does what it needs to, the title can be image three and not really matter beyond being able to identify it with something simpler than the caption. The prevalence of captioning means that most adopt that style, even maybe even subconsciously, when titling their work. This has the outcome of a verbose, far from succinct header, which leaves the project titled almost as if it were an academic essay. I've done this myself with my smaller publications. I think, funnily enough, the less well-defined I feel the work is more I feel the title ought to say. For example, I made a 36-page zine titled Digest Photographs Made in India, August 2019, which isn't particularly poetic, but does tell you exactly what to expect and when it was made. There's no narrative or theme for the images outside of it being work made in a specific place at a specific time, indefinitely ready to me like an essay title. That's not to say it's a bad thing to be this direct. I honestly wouldn't go back and retitle that release something different because it says exactly what I wanted to say. One of my upcoming projects will see a return to India with a specific goal in mind, which means I won't need the title to set out the parameters as it does above. Instead, it will have a more poetic and punchy name. In whose name, the Islamic world after 9-11 by Abbas Attar is just as specific and also reads to me like an essay title.
But while it tells you exactly what to expect, it also poses a question for you to consider as you read through the work. The Islamic world after 9-11 is a specific place and time which references an entire status quo and event, which contextualizes the question in the title, which also contextualizes the work. This pulls a lot of weight, whereas my simpler expeditionary title simply outlines boundaries. It does not set the scene as Abbas's title does. I'd like to think about how song titles, our songs are titled, as more often than not, it will just be a line from the lyrics. Rarer are Bohemian Rhapsody, Space Oddity, or Viva La Vida, where the title is not actually mentioned in the song itself. For titling your own work, you can straight up just say what's in them, like using a line from the lyrics, or you can use how you felt about them or connect with them, an idiotism or an inside joke, although this narrows down accessibility to your audience. As with American Gothic, there's potential for someone to overlook the relationship the title offers. Titling the work, quote, the end of the game only really works when it's clear beyond the title that the game refers to hunting game and not football in this sense. It is good that a title is a part, uh, but not all, of what can be used to convey the meaning you want to get across. A title can be used to subvert as it is not separate from the work itself. It is a part of the experience. A photograph of a person weeping at a gravesite titled Happiest Moment almost turns the work into a uh, diptych, except instead of two juxtaposed images, it is an image juxtaposed with language. A title can imply meaning or be explicit, but either way, people will always infer meaning from it and may do this in a way you do not expect. The title can prime an audience to expect one thing and use that expectation to fulfill or defy that perception. For some, the image itself is what is important, not writing and peripherals, and this may lead them to assign an image or many images untitled. I'm not a huge fan of Untitled, although I can't understand why it's done. It just seems to me that there are better ways it can be referred to, like a simple location date format. Most of my individual photographs do not have specific titles, but they do belong to larger bodies of work, which means I can talk about them in terms of their relationship to that body of work. For example, Christmas Day Prayer from Trans, uh, Transiting Bulgaria or a leaf-adorned construction site from Fountain Stone. Our foundation stone, I'm sorry. Even though these titles could refer to several images from the actual series, it still works as a temporary title for those images taken out of context. And I can always add specificity, uh, specificity, excuse me, if I need to further differentiate. When actually working on a project, researching, photographing, and exploring a certain idea, a title can be the missing puzzle piece, which brings everything together. A few times I've had an idea of what I wanted to say, why I wanted to say it, and what images I'll need to do it, but the missing title makes it feel hard to tie important but very distinct separate things into one another. A title offers a clear path through many ideas, bridges those divides, and fills in blanks of ambiguity. A recent collective zine uh, titled The Summer Solstice at Stonehenge as part of a wider story, but we put together a proof of concept piece from that one event. The work involves images of different spiritual practices, occult rituals, and celebratory scenes, but the through line was one thing everyone was sharing, even if they were doing it in a different way. Waiting, almost longing for the sun to break over the horizon. The result, Dawn Orison. If we had titled it something more straightforward, like Morning Prayer, which is effectively synonymous, then it wouldn't have had the same vibe as prayer is a more accessible term that invokes a Sunday church service, not obscure occult practices. My book, DC Exclusion Zone, contains the where and the what, and only a little bit of context is needed to understand the when and the why. The title is concise, but contains meaning by uh, meaning to unpack beyond what they plainly denote. The same is true of the first collaborative zine, uh, by the collective I am part of, the new exit group, Bardo, Summer of 20, tells you exactly when the images were made, but also the context, as 2020 is an unmistakable sign to a contemporary audience. It invokes many of the summer of blank styled titles, but that aspect is framed by the word Bardo, 
which when unpacked sets the stage for the rest of the publication. Bardo refers to a limbo-like existence making the summer of 20 not akin to the summer of love or any similar summer-themed title, but one that is of uncertainty and tension. And wow, that's quite an article, uh, especially on how to title your work, but it is an interesting piece, so that's why I wanted to share it with you today and give you a little bit to think about when it comes to titling your work. And I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. DZO Films new Cata Ace 18 to 35 T2.9 cinema lens is a versatile wide angle parfocal optic that promises controlled focus breathing and excellent image rendering for the price that's comparable to pro level photography centric lenses. Petapixel doesn't often cover new high-end cinema glass from the likes of industry mammoths like Cook, Ari, or Lights, because as good as the performance of these lenses is, and the performance of any of these will be phenomenal, the prices are so out of reach for the average or even above average filmmaker that they're not even on most people's radar. But DZO film cinema lenses are a lot more approachable and are generally priced in line with pro-level photography-focused glass. Take, for example, the new Cata Ace 18-35 T2.9, which features an all-metal build, controlled-focused breathing, and a parfocal design for $3,200. DZO Film says that the Cata Ace is able to allow users to enjoy a broader range of visuals in their work, including wide shots of areas and landscapes, which can be used to set the tone of a scene. The 18-35 T2.9 Cinema Lens, which is fully manual, is constructed of 20 elements arranged into 14 groups and includes four extra low dispersion elements and one a spherical lens that the company says combine to maintain outstanding image performance with significantly minimized curvature of a field of view and reduced chromatic aberration and impressive overall sharpness. The manual iris smoothly operates from between 2.9 through T22 via a 20-bladed diaphragm, which DZO Film says produces a pleasing bokeh. The company says that focus breathing is controlled and there is negligible visual change when racking focus. And whether a filmmaker zooms in or out, DZO Film says the center of the image stays sharp thanks to the parafocal design. Below are a few still frames taken from the footage captured with the Attica A or the Cata Ace 18-35 T2.9 cinema lens. And there are some beautiful images in this article in the show notes. DZO Film designed the lens to work in tandem with its Cata Ace 35-80 and 70-135 lenses, and therefore shares the same body design and measurements, making it easy to swap among these lenses during a shoot without having to adjust the rest of the camera setup. All three lenses are available in an interchangeable PL, EF, and LPL mount. The Cata Ace 18-35 costs $3,899 and is slated to ship by the end of January. So definitely an interesting new lens from DZO Film. And it might be just what you're looking for if you're a non-big studio video shooter. Maybe it'll give you something a little more practical for your budget. A wedding photographer has recalled how she handled the situation where the bride walked out on the big day and the groom's mother ordered her to delete any pictures of her. Photographer uh, Shayla Harrington revealed in a viral TikTok video that she was shooting a wedding when the bride left the reception unexpectedly. Harrington then recalls the predicament she was left in when the groom's mother, who had paid for the photographs, ordered her to delete any photos of the bride and only deliver images without her. Harrington says she was shooting the wedding and was scheduled to finish the job in an hour. 
However, the photographer had not seen the bride since the couple had cut their wedding cake together. After the newlyweds had cut the cake together, the groom took the cake and put it in the bride's face. Harrington assumed the bride had left briefly to clean her face and would return to the party afterward. But then a bridesmaid notified the photographer that the bride had stormed out of the wedding reception. Quote, someone was supposed to come tell you that she left, the bridesmaid tells Harrington. She adds the bride told the groom that if he put cake in her face, she was out. The wedding photographer is unsure about what to do now. Quote, so does everyone here know that we're just going to proceed like normal? What are we doing? Harrington asked the bridesmaid. The bridesmaid does not have an answer, but saying she is going to meet with the bride elsewhere. The wedding photographer decides to continue taking photos at the reception as she is under contract. She will then get in touch with the bride in a couple of days. The bridesmaid tells Harrington that the bride would not care if the photographer left the reception early, too. However, the groom's mother had actually paid for the photographer, so it was up to her. In a further TikTok video, the photographer details how the groom's mother approached her at the wedding. The groom's mother tells Harrington, I am so sorry to disappoint you, but I guess the bride has decided to waste everyone's time tonight and has up and left the wedding. She continues, so I know you, you, we have you booked for another hour, so I guess I'll just have you take some family portraits of us without the bride and then you're free to go. Harrington happily agrees to this, but then the groom's mother requests that the photographer delete all of the images of the bride and only deliver pictures that do not include her. The groom's mother instructs her, as for the photos, you can just deliver the ones without the bride. She then adds, otherwise, any photos of the bride, you can just toss those. Harrington outwardly agrees to the groom's mother's request. However, the photographer reveals that she secretly sent a gallery to the bride with cute photos of her and her girls getting ready. The clips have since amassed over 3.8 million views on TikTok, and social media users have praised the photographer for defying the groom's mother. I'm so glad you sent the bride her photos, the user writes. Another TikTok user commends Harrington, unless it's in the contract, 100% right thing to do. A further viewer also applauds Harrington, quote, this is why the married couple signs the contract and not the person paying. So no mother-in-law power trips here. And I definitely thought this was an interesting story, which is why I wanted to share it with you this week. Um, seems kind of odd to me that the bride would walk out of her own wedding over a little cake in the face. But I don't know. I guess some people have odd personalities, I guess you could say. Really strange, though. I mean, it's just a joke. Get over it. A photographer stumbled upon rare alien-like goose barnacles on a beach that could potentially be worth up to thousands of dollars. Photographer John Jennings was cycling along the beach in Biscombe Bay, uh, uh, Bournemouth in the UK on Sunday morning when he came across the strange-looking object. Jennings had initially been chasing the storm on the seafront in the hope of getting some weather shots. However, as soon as the photographer saw the bizarre and surreal object washed up on the beach, he knew he had to get some pictures of it. When I first saw them, I had no idea what I was looking at, to be totally honest, and was just excited to get some shots of them because they looked so cool, Jennings tells Petapixel. Quote, I think at first they're definitely looked, they definitely looked like they were on some sort of beached animal. He adds, they did look pretty alien-like, but in the sense of I had never seen anything like it before. Jennings soon discovered that the alien-looking object was a four-foot log covered in extremely rare goose barnacles. Quote, we figured it out after my friend's friend Laura's mother told us, the photographer explains. Laura had sent a picture of uh, to her of them, and she came back straight away with what they were and how special these goose barnacles are, and they're extremely unique. This led me to go back to the beach to see them again, not that I needed an excuse. Jennings posted his photos on social media and the images of the goose barnacles made headlines in the UK. Experts from Bournemouth University also identified the object in Jennings' photos as goose barnacles hitching a ride on a large log. According to a piece in the, Guardian, or in the Daily Telegraph, the goose barnacles that Jennings discovered washed up on the coast could be worth thousands of dollars. The crustaceans are one of the world's rarest and most valuable seafood due to the unique conditions they need to grow in and the difficulty of collecting them. Goose barnacles have a long, fleshy stem, which looks like a neck, topped with a chalky white shell that houses the main body of the barnacle. 
They are related to crabs and lobsters living on plankton and detritus in the sea. It is believed the goose barnacles washed up on the coast as a result of a recent stormy weather in the UK. Goose barnacles, also known as uh, percebs, are an expensive delicacy in Spain and Portugal. Known for their sweet flavor, they can cost up to $97 per pound. And more of Jennings' work can be found on his Instagram. So, wow, I guess he did hit the jackpot a little bit with these super rare and super odd-looking goose barnacles. And now we'll head on over to Nikon Rumors. Sigma did not announce its first Z-mount lens on the 13th. They only released a new Sigma 60-600 f4.5-6.3 DGDN OS sports lens for the Sony E-mount and Leica L-mount. Of course, it is very easy for some to make comments and predictions about the official announcements. Monday morning quarterbacks. I went back to my previous post where I clearly reported that I expect Sigma to announce new Z-mount lenses in 2023. The last report came from Nokashita via Digicam Info and indicated that the new 60-600mm lens will come together with the new Z-mount lens. Quote, rumors are circulating online about Sigma's next E-mount new product and Z-mount entry. It is unknown which will be announced first, the first Sigma E-mount lens to be released in 2023 or Sigma's entry into the Nikon Z-mount lenses. I just wrongly assumed that both new products would be announced together, and obviously this did not happen. My exact words were, quote, the first Sigma mirrorless lens for Nikon Z-mount could be announced next week. Nokashida and Digicam Info have an almost perfect history of predicting and reporting upcoming products, so the first Sigma lens for Nikon Z is coming this year, and this has already been decided a long time ago. So I guess we'll have to wait a little longer for their announcement of their first Z-mount lens. Today, Nikon Japan introduced price revisions for some accessories, hot shoe covers, and open pricing for most Nikon lenses. My understanding is that Nikon will no longer enforce suggested retail pricing and will let retailers determine the final selling price, which in most cases will mean a price increase, especially for the newer, harder-to-get products. Please note that for this new strategy is officially announced only for the Japanese market. Here is the full text. Notice the price revision and open pricing for some products, January 12, 2023. Thank you for your continued patronage of Nikon products. From January 19, 2023, which is Thursday, we will revise the suggested retail price and shipping price of Golf Laser Rangefinder 2 products and camera accessories 8 products. In a harsh environment such as the recent shortage of semiconductors and soaring raw material costs, we have been striving to reduce costs by promoting efficiency and streamlining, but we have come to a situation where corporate efforts alone cannot absorb cost increases in the medium to long term. So we have revised our prices. We have decided to implement. In addition, for Nikkor lenses, Z-mount and F-mount, and mount adapter FTZ2, we will change the suggested retail price displayed to open price display. Scheduled date, Thursday, January 19th, 2023. Please see below for details and a list of eligible products. And the list of products subject to price revision, PDF, and a list of products subject to change from suggested retail display to open price display, PDF. The price increase includes the Nikon metal hot shoe covers that are not available for sale in the U.S., but can be found on eBay. So it looks like Nikon's going to do what they can to try to offset some of their increased costs. And you can't blame them. It is a very tough market right now. And out of the three major camera companies, they have the least amount of cash flow available to them. Next on over to Fuji Rumors, Kippen starts to accept pre-orders for the M645 to GFX autofocus adapter with two models. Kippen started to accept pre-orders for two models of the Phase M645 GFX E0.8X and the Phase M645 GFX E adapters. Early bird discounted price for these adapters, the first one is 1080 US, retailer price would be 1350 US. Early bird discounted price for the second adapter is 498 US, retailer price would be 623 US. Delivery from March 10th to March 25th, 2023. And you can find all details at the Kippen website. 
and check it out for yourself. Photodiox launched their new Photodiox 11mm auto macro extension tube for the Fujifilm GFX cameras in addition to their already existing Photodiox 20mm and 48mm macro extension tubes. They all have electronic communications, meaning you can still use autofocus, control aperture with the command dials and get all the EXIF data. You can combine the 11mm macro tube with the Photodiax 20 or 48 macro extension tubes to get even more macro capabilities. The Photodiax 11mm macro tube can be found at B&H Photo and Amazon, as well as the 20mm and the 48mm. So definitely some interesting new extension tubes for macro photography for the GFX bodies. That's pretty cool. I always encourage innovation and new ways of doing things. And it looks like Photodiox is running with that. Good for them. It took a while, but the Nisi 9mm f2.8 is now available at Amazon US and B&H Photo. Christopher Frost has already shared his review for the Sony version, and we summed it up for you in an accompanying link. This lens can be purchased, uh, can be ordered for $459 at B&H Photo. Be aware of spoofed emails that pretend to be Fujifilm. As of January 13th, 2023, spoofed emails that pretend to be Fujifilm's email address have been confirmed. We have seen the following sender addresses with our domain used for spoofing, info at fujifilm.com, vs-info at fujifilm.com, and ffvs-info at fujifilm.com. The content of this spoofed email is to make the recipient think that there is an illegal product order that the recipient did not order on a major e-commerce site and includes them or induces them to click the cancel order button to cancel it. This email may be intended to steal the recipient's personal information, so if you receive such a suspicious email, do not click the cancel order button. In addition, there is a possibility that the email address is disguised even with the email address using the Fujifilm domain. If there is anything suspicious about the sender, subject, or text, please do not access the link in the text. And you can submit an inquiry form, which you can find in this article in the show notes to keep yourself safe. The Sigma 135 F1.8 has a super $313 discount at B&H Photo, but nearly all Sigma and Tamron email lenses are discounted. Up to $300 off on Sigma lenses at B&H Photo, Amazon, and Adorama, and up to $100 off on Tamron lenses at the same three retailers. And this is coming to us from Sony Alpha Rumors for this week. And now, on to the last story for today's episode. Super Wild Rumors 500mm GM Sony Speed Booster and high-end APS-C. I just got this from a completely new source, so there is a very big chance it might be wrong and complete BS. But I am posting it nevertheless because I'm curious to learn from you if actually an email-to-email speed booster would be even technically possible to make. Here is what that message contained. Quote, APS-C will be pushed big in the near term, better high-end APS-C glass and higher resolution sensors. FX30 is recent proof of this. Will Sony release an A6800 or an A8000? I don't know, but the next rumor is quasi-related to APS-C rumor. Second, Sony will release a 500mm f4 lens and a speed booster in 2023. The new FE lens is coming as the global chip shortage is almost gone. Chip bloat is coming. It won't quite be 500 millimeters, but actually 485, but sold as a 500. F-stop will be 4.12 and not a 4.0. This is a new GM lens will be sold as a 500 F4. I have no idea on pricing, but probably between 6,000 and 9,000 euros. Speed Booster will concentrate full-frame FE down to APS-C size. Speed Booster is intended to boost the APS-C camera market. Hopefully, the E-mount Speed Booster will work for all FE lenses and not just the GM lenses. Like I said, E-mount to E-mount Speed Booster really sounds like a lot of BS, but it would be technically possible. I actually think this would be a great product to make. And as I've warned you before, take anything from Sony Rumors with a grain of salt as his track record is extremely low for accurate 
rumor stories. Remember to check out the Land Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 307 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you might be getting your podcasts. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. And my next video will be out this afternoon. So make sure you're set to be notified. Now, just some upcoming information for you. Tomorrow, I will be recording my next interview with Skip Cohen from Skip Cohen University, which will be released this coming Thursday. In this episode, Skip and I will be talking about photography blogging and how to clean up your business site to make it more attractive to clients. Now, in addition to that, Thursday will also kick off the start of the next contest with the next giveaway prize. Now, if you've been listening to the show, you know that I already have the prize for this next contest. It was very kindly donated by Larry at uh, Larry, Dr. Larry Tiefenbrunn at Platypod, and it will be a Platypod Extreme, brand new, in the box, for the lucky winner of this contest. Now, in order to enter the contest, once I post it, you'll be able to use the Gleam.io's uh, contest system. And all you'll have to do is subscribe to the YouTube channel to get your entries in. Now, that giveaway contest is more than likely going to run about 90 days just so I can give as many people as possible an opportunity to get their entries in for their chance to win a Platypod Extreme. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode. I will see you all again on Thursday.